Please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. The Gospel of John, chapter 21, and we will be looking at verses 1 to 14. Last Lord's Day, uh, Jason had went over those two core passages of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John gives the purpose of the book, why he is writing all of this. And he says, as Jason had went over, that this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And it seems as if, since we've reached the climax of the book, as to the purpose of the book, and we have, right before that, we have Thomas, who gives his great confession of our Lord, which is really the climax of all the confessions throughout the Gospel of John. It seems as if it would end. It would end shortly after giving the purpose of the book. But he doesn't. He doesn't give us an instance in which, even after that, where Jesus gives his great commission, for example, right after this these verses of chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He doesn't give us that account as Matthew does. Instead, he gives us a little bit more into the resurrection appearances of our Lord and a little bit more into the lives of the disciples after the resurrection. And in one sense, you look at this and you say, well, why didn't John just end it? Why didn't he end If he didn't end with verses 30 and 31 after he gives the purpose of the book, why didn't he end with Jesus giving his commands before he ascended into heaven? Why is he writing the rest of this? Because chapter 21, even though it's in reference to the disciples, it is really focused a lot on Peter. And perhaps John, in writing the rest of this, wants the readers to understand the life that comes thereafter. The life that... They are now to have in Christ after their failures and after everything that's happened, after he's been, after he has commissioned them to, to be his witnesses. This is what we need to understand that comes thereafter and not just leave it open. John wants us to see what all is going on, perhaps in the hearts of the disciples and how Jesus is going to bring them along even, far, even farther than what he has already. There are some great lessons here in this chapter that really, and I pray, truly do encourage our hearts and comfort us. Because the things that perhaps the disciples are feeling and going through, and that first portion of chapter 21 is where we find ourselves often. We also find ourselves at times trying to do things in our own power, trying to go our own way, wondering what it is that we need to be doing. Can we even be useful to the kingdom because of our own failures And chapter 21 really gives us the answers to those things, the very things that we struggle with. And if we just look at it as a whole, we can see that in this chapter, not only did did we see last Lord's Day in in verses 30 and 31 that Christ has, has been confirmed to be who he was through his resurrection, through his miracles, through his signs, and that the entirety of the Gospel of John is pointing to this fact Believe and you have life. And now what we're getting to in chapter 21, just to sum it all up, really, is that Christ is providing all that is needed for our new life in him. Not only has he provided everything that was needed for our justification, but now he provides everything that is needed thereafter. And I pray that this will be an encouragement to us as we work our way through this passage. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Demas, and Nathaniel of Cana of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, And two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. 
They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net, on, drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And thank you, Father, for the message that you give to us through this portion of your word. Father, we often battle with ourselves and our failures, but we thank you that your mercies are new every morning, and we thank you that everything that is ever done is in your, your power, not in our own. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement that we receive here, and we pray that the Spirit of God would adhere it to our hearts. Bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So the disciples are now in Galilee, and as we read in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, that was the instructions that Jesus had for his disciples. Wait for me in Galilee. So here they are. They're in Galilee. They are together, and they are waiting. And there are some things just to, to point out to your attention there uh, before we get into, I think, the main understanding of these first at least three verses here is one that the disciples were together. When we think of what comes thereafter, after our justification, after our salvation in Christ, it is that the people of God are convened together. It is that we are together awaiting our Lord. We are waiting to, to, for the Lord to speak to our hearts through the word of God being declared to us. We have fellowship with one another. These things are important to point out here that the disciples, even though they're in their hometown, they are in a familiar place. This is the place that Jesus begins his, has begun his ministry. This is the place where he was preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. They're familiar with this, and yet they are still together. They are together awaiting their Lord. And you also have, just to point this out, you have a number of the disciples that are mentioned here that are mentioned back in chapter 1 as well. We're told that Simon Peter and Thomas, and that, that in itself is something to look at as well. That the first two that are mentioned here is Simon Peter and Thomas. Peter, the one who had denied our Lord, the one who had failed so miserably, is named first. And it's interesting that the guys around him are going to follow him. He says he's going to go fishing. Well, they're going to go too. And then you have Thomas. Thomas, who is the one who had said to the rest of the disciples, I'm not going to believe that he is risen unless I see him for myself. And yet these two are named at the beginning. But you have Simon Peter, you have Thomas, you have Nathaniel, and you have the sons of Zebedee, which would include, of course, John, and two other disciples were together. Now, Peter, Andrew, Philip, these other two could be Andrew and Philip, it's very possible, but at least four of these were mentioned in the first chapter, and here they are still at the end together. And this is 
This is something just to point out in the sense that the ones whom Christ had begun with, that he lost none. Because he has preserved them, and since he has preserved them, they persevered even to the end. But they're together. They're in Galilee. And here you have Simon Peter who says to the rest of them, I'm going to go fishing. And the rest say, we're going to come with you. Now, there's differing views as, as, the far, as far as what's happening here and whether or not Peter should be rebuked for disobedience, perhaps. Some would view this as Peter just being having a lack of faith. We're going to go fishing. I don't think that's what it is. I mean, if we think about this, that Peter had a wife, Peter had a family. Here they are waiting for the, the Lord to appear again, as he said that he would. He's got to provide for his family. And perhaps he thinks to himself, I have failed him as a disciple, but I am a professional fisherman. And so I'm going to go make my living and provide for my family, going back to what it was that I had done before. And the rest of the disciples go. So in one sense, you can't really fault Peter for, for doing this. It's not a lack of faith. He knows that Christ is alive, obviously. The Lord has appeared uh, to him at least twice. But what is it maybe that Peter has going on in his own mind? <clears throat> yes, he was in the room when our Lord appeared and our Lord had told them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And he's speaking to the group, but maybe Peter thinks to himself that he's just too far gone in order to be used effectively for the ministry of our Lord because of what he had done. And so for Peter, maybe that's what he has in his mind. After his failures, what, what can he do? What is he able to do? You know, you think of the time in which he had denied our Lord. When you read of the third time that he had denied him, according to Matthew 26, the text says that Peter began to curse and to swear that he never knew him. This was very emphatic. And maybe, maybe he's thinking that he cannot contribute anything to the kingdom. He can't be used effectively because of what he had done. Still feeling the guilt. And, and we can come to some of those conclusions because we look at the rest of the chapter and Jesus is focused primarily upon Peter. And so if Jesus is focused primarily on Peter and he's going to ask Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Then much of what Peter is feeling is probably those very things. Can it be used for the kingdom? Is he, is he useless now? Has his failures brought him to a point that he cannot do anything? And so he goes fishing. I wasn't good as a disciple, but I can go fishing. I'm a professional fisher. And so they go. The other disciples go. They're following Peter. And John tells us that they went out and they got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. They caught nothing. If this was their attempt to go back to their old occupation, well, it was a failure. They didn't catch anything. Not one fish all night. It's very similar to uh, Luke's account in Luke chapter 5 that they told all night and they, ca they caught nothing. And maybe this was our Lord... Uh, our Lord working in this to, to have them to understand this is not what I have for you to do. You don't, you're not going to go back to your old occupation because he has already commissioned them to do something else. And this includes Peter. He has chosen this path thinking that this is all he has and our Lord says no. There's something else. But that is so, that, but, but again, that, that is just so much like we are. 
We think, one, because of things that have occurred in our past, there are failures that we have that we cannot be used effectively for the kingdom. We think this. We become very sorrowful, perhaps, over, over things that have happened in our life, and we say, oh, Lord, I know that you can't use me. I'm not going to be effective. And when we think that way, the very thing that we are placing upon ourselves is the power of effectiveness in ministry. I can't be used. Well, who says you can't be used? You? Is it in your power? That's not the case. You think of not only Peter and the other disciples and the failure of, of remaining with our Lord whenever it, it came to his most trying time. Indeed, they struck the shepherd and the sheep scattered. But you think of the Apostle Paul, one who was killing Christians, arresting them, and how greatly that he was used by our Lord. Did Paul have his failures even after his conversion? I'm sure he did because he says in Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin. That's why he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. But thanks be to God. Paul had his failures as well. And the, and the very thing that we have to come back to is this. What did we understand from, from chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, when Jason went over it last Lord's Day? That salvation is a pure act of God's grace. It is all Him. There is no work to do, so He saves you in spite of you. He saves you in spite of the things that He knows that you will do. It is all through faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's definitely nothing you can do to keep it. And there's nothing that you can do in order to make sure that God uses you. If you are a child of God, you are his, you are his instrument in his hand, and he will direct you as he sees fit. But have you ever felt that though? You couldn't be used because of something you had done. Or maybe, maybe it's something else in your life. Maybe you've chosen a path for yourself that you're not advancing. It's not working out. You just keep hitting, hitting a wall, as it were, and whatever it is that you've tried to choose for yourself. Perhaps that's the Lord saying to you, this isn't what I have for you to do. I have something else for you to do. And our Lord works in our lives in that way, putting up barriers so that we can't advance where we want to because perhaps he is leading us in a different direction. But that's, that's where the disciples were. That's where Peter was. You know, Peter definitely has an interesting temperament about himself, but he is one that, that does seem to be very hard on himself. Because of what he did. After he had denied our Lord, he, he runs out of the city. And the text tells us that he weeps bitterly. Very sorrowful. But look at this, though. Maybe this is all of what they're feeling. What is going on in their hearts and in their minds. We're going to go back to fishing. Well, indeed, they're going to go back to fishing. Just not the fishing that they had done previously. So we read. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Maybe it was because of the mist on the water, maybe it was still a little dark, they're a hundred yards away. I don't think there's any reason to look at this and to say there's any supernatural thing going on here. It's they're a hundred yards away, and it's just now getting light outside, they probably didn't recognize him. So he says to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? You know, it's so interesting to me that you have so many instances within the scripture in which our Lord asks questions that he knows the answer to. When he asked Adam and Eve, where are you? Did you eat of the tree? When he says to the woman, what have you done? When he says in Isaiah 6, who will go for us? Of course, he knows the answer. Even Jesus, during the time of his ministry, 
Who do people say the Son of Man is? He already knows the answer. And he already knows the answer here. One theologian actually translates this as a... Well, I'll just tell you how he translates it. He says that this could have meant, you have caught nothing at all, now have you? And that is to bring to their minds their failure at going back to their previous occupation. You thought you was going to go catch some fish. Not today. And it was a recognition that their return to their former occupation was indeed a failure. And that's what Jesus perhaps is bringing to light to them. And they still don't recognize it's him. But he says, cast the net on the right hand side and you will find a catch. Now interestingly, these men who are professional fishermen are not looking at this stranger on the beach and saying, who is this guy? We've been throwing the net out all night. Who are you to tell us to throw the net out again? But you know, there's no pushback. There's nothing like that. What do they do? They take the net and they throw it out. They listen to the stranger who was on the beach. And that in itself is a very significant thing. Because it, I would venture to say at any other point, if some stranger somebody they didn't know or didn't recognize was on the beach, they're professional fishermen, I would imagine there would be some pushback there. I know how to fish. Who are you? But because it was the Son of God who spoke, there was no pushback. And they did exactly what he wanted them to do. So they cast the net and they were, they were, they were not even able to, to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Think of that. And immediately, John says, and he's next to Peter. They're always right there together. It is the Lord. And Peter puts on his garment and dives into the sea. You know, it's interesting. You know, again, you think of Peter's personality compared to John's. John is one who sees things. He perceives things a little quicker than Peter, and Peter's one who just acts. John had looked into the empty tomb and had perceived what had happened and, and believed, and Peter looks in there just the same as John, and he's theorizing of what had happened. Here John understands that this is the Lord on the beach, and Peter just jumps in. You have those differences of personalities, which is something that we should indeed appreciate because there's a variety of personalities within the church body. And they all complement one another. No two people are going to be the same. No two people are going to think the same. We're not going to say the same things. We're not going to act in the same way. One, <clears throat> one theologian had pointed out that you have, you have the man of vision, then you have the man of action within the church. And they complement each other. And that's men and women both complementing each other on the various gifts that have been given. And so Peter dives into the sea. The rest of them are dragging the catch. And they're about 100 yards away dragging the, the net full of fish. And uh, just to, again, uh, I know there's a lot to point out, but uh, I want to bring that to your attention, too, that there are so many details that are here in this passage. That it was just daybreak whenever they saw the Lord and heard his voice. They were about 100 yards away. And eventually he's going to say that they caught 153 fish. The details themselves are significant and imply that this is eyewitness account. He doesn't just give you know, general statements of something. He's given specifics. But notice this. When they, get, <clears throat> when they get on the land, they already see a charcoal fire and fish on it and bread. Jesus isn't cooking their fish. 
He's cooking his fish and his bread. He tells him to pull the catch up. And why does he say to, to pull it up on the land? It's not to eat. Is it perhaps that he's wanting them to see exactly what he has brought about? I think that's a lot of it. I think that's, that's a lot of what Jesus is showing them throughout this whole thing is the effectiveness of, of, of his power, of his guidance, of his direction. He's the one who says to them in that, that kind of rebuking manner, you haven't caught anything, have you? Cast the net here. They catch. Then he bids them to come in. He already has something for them. Everything is being done by him. And I think that's the point. That's the point. Is that everything is being provided by him. Everything is being done in his power. Not in the power of the disciples. Not in the talents of the disciples. Nothing. It's all about him. And what he provides. And perhaps this is an instance in which he is going to use this. And to remind them that yes... You're going to be fishers, but I told you you would be fishers of men. And to remind them that, as he said in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. It is a lesson for them that it must be within the power of Christ himself, through his direction and through his guidance, that anything can be done effectively. I believe that's the point. And again, he already had fish and bread. He provides their needs again. They've been toiling all night. Bring some of the fish. He already has something cooked for them. And then we read this, that Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn, whereas beforehand in Luke's gospel, the net was, was tearing. Again, it's all pointing to his power. His effectiveness. Not in anything with the disciples. Now just to, to go over this because there is various ideas. Why does he say 153 fish? What's happening there? Is anything happening there? So there have been some within church history to come up with various ideas as to why he, he lists that there are 153 some think, as Augustine did, that this is a summation of triangular numbers. That was his take on it. So when you have triangular numbers, I'll tell you this, it's the 17th line of a triangular number. So you have 17 lines. You start at the top. You put one. The next line, one, two. Next line, one, two, three. Next line, one, two, three, four. And you keep adding another number until you get all the way to... The line number 17. And when you have 1 through 17 that's added all up, it equals 153. So according to Augustine, you have 10 commandments. And then you have 7, which is the number of perfection that describes the perfection of our Lord. And so that was his take. Yeah, that, that was his. Again, let, one of the great lessons that we can ever learn from, from Scripture is never read too much into things that are just plainly there. You know what I mean? Other thinks, uh, some others think that maybe it was um, Grammatria, which is where you ascribe numeric values to the Hebrew consonants. And when you add them all up, it equals 153. And this man was saying that if you add up the numeric values of the phrase sons of God, that it comes up to 153. No. <laughs> Not happening. No, no, no. And still another said that uh, Jerome... In church history, Jerome had met some kind of a zoologist, kind of a man or whatever. And this man had told him that there were 153 different kinds of fish. 
Maybe there were just 153 fish. Maybe that's the answer. It doesn't have any spiritual significance. You don't have to do triangular numbers and and come up with this elaborate take on why you have 10 and then you have 7 and they equal up to this. And you don't have to add numeric values to Hebrew letters and come up with maybe a phrase that he's emphasizing. There's 153 fish. And that's all we need to know. It was a big catch. 153. And that is a significant detail because not of anything of spiritual value or whatever. It's just pointing the the fact of the matter is there's an eyewitness account that said there were 153 fish. But again, what is he going back to? In all of this that he, is, that, he is, that he is referencing here, that he is recording for us, the men toil all night, they're trying to do their own thing, but as soon as Christ steps into the picture and he directs them to do what he says, they have a great catch. They're blessed by the Lord in bringing this many fish, 153. He provided it. He provides the sustenance for them after toiling all night. Everything is done in his power. He is the provider. One writer says, The purpose of the miracle was to open the eyes of these men, to make them see that by themselves they could accomplish nothing, and to strengthen their faith in him. That was William Hendrickson. That's what Jesus is showing them. That's what he is teaching them. And that is the very lesson that we ourselves need to understand. That apart from him you can accomplish nothing. You do not do things within your own power because in the instance that you do, you will fail. We don't try to go our own way apart from where Christ is set for us to go and what he is set for us to do because you will fail. And not just individually, but even as a church. You know, as a church, we do not have elaborate techniques or whatever in order to try to bring people in or to catch the eye of an unbeliever and to bring them into the church and any of this. We don't do any of that. The very thing that we do is we cast the net out and our Lord brings in the increase. The net of the gospel. Our Lord says, throw it here. And that's where we throw it. And our Lord gives the increase. It's all done in His power. According to His direction and His guidance, Christ brings in whom He desires. And He does so through the preaching of the gospel. All within his power according to his way of doing it. That's why we don't use techniques of manipulation or whatever the case is. We don't do that. We stick to what Christ has said. Preach the gospel. Declare the gospel. We don't need to paint up the church to be anything other than what it is. Christ is the king. Christ has said this is how it is to be done. As Jason had shared with you before, uh, Paul Washer at the G3 conference a couple of years ago had talked about what modern day churches are doing. And he, he gives this, this kind of a, this story to describe it. He says you have a king who has his bride and he loves his bride and he He only dresses her in in pure white linen. He doesn't need to add anything to her. He doesn't need to put makeup on her. Nothing like that because her beauty is what it is without all of that. He loves her in spite of that. And so he says to his servants, I'm going to go on a long journey. Take care of my bride. And so the king goes on his long journey and the servants are there and they notice that after a period of time, that the people seem to be losing interest in the king, and they start losing interest in the king, perhaps, because they're losing interest in the bride. And so they bring the bride, they take off her pure white garment, they dress her up something more sensual, they paint up her face to make her more attractive to carnal men, and they parade her down the streets, hoping to attract carnal men back to her, and thereby attracting them back to the king. And that's what many have done today within the church. We don't do any of that. Because our Lord says, throw out the net. 
and I'll catch whom I desire. It is by the preaching of the gospel in which people are brought to faith by our Lord. And it's all in his power. And he is teaching them, again, the former occupation, it's gone. Here's what I want you to do. So not only does he take them from feeling as sorrowful, perhaps, as they were, wondering what they're going to do, taking Peter himself, and he's going to address Peter later on, of course, in a wonderful uh, dialogue there. But he takes them from thinking that they're going back to their former manner of life. He shows them that it's all within his power, all the things that he has for them. He's providing it all. And then he invites them into to this fellowship. He says, come and have some breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to them. See, the, the great, the, the amazing thing of it all. I mean, when you get down to it, the amazing thing of it all is that God would use mere creatures to do anything. Because of who we are. And yet he does. And he works through us, his power in the hearts of others to accomplish. He requires of us to be obedient. That's part of our new life in Christ. To go where he says to go, to do what he says to do. And then not only is he saying go and labor and, and all of this, but come and fellowship. He says come and have some breakfast. Often fellowship takes place over a meal. This is a meal that Jesus has provided himself. But it often happens that way. It happens over a meal. You go out with someone and... Maybe you go to lunch together or something like that, and you, you sit, you eat, you talk, you get to know one another. A lot of that occurs over a meal. A lot of times we rejoice before the Lord, eating together. I mean, if you think about some of the, the annual feast in which Israel was required to come to the temple, they were to eat and rejoice before the Lord. And so we partake of a meal too in which we fellowship with our Lord which is the Lord's Supper you know there are two words that are translated into English from the Greek word koinonia which means fellowship or communion and our Lord invites us to come and to fellowship with the living incarnate God who has saved us he invites us to fellowship to sit down with, with him in the meal. With all their failures and with all their struggles and with all their sins. Everything that, is, that has occurred in their life, Jesus says, come. Regardless of what failures that you have had in your life. And what struggles that you have had in your life. And what sins that you have in your life, your Lord says, come. You know why he says come? Because he has already paid for it. He's already taken care of it. And he has credited to you his righteousness, his perfection. That you may come freely into fellowship with the living God. A lot of times we don't want to approach the throne of grace because we're too ashamed or we're too embarrassed or whatever it is that, it, that we've done. And if you think about this, in the time in which you have sinned against the Lord, what's the very thing you don't want to do? Immediately, the very thing as you understand how greatly maybe you've sinned against the Lord, the thing that you don't want to do is to go before him in prayer. We don't want to do that because of our shame. We know that we're coming before the holy living God. In the recognition of who he is and who we are and what we've just done, we tend to try to ignore it. But you know what he says? He says, come.
He has saved us in spite of our failures. And you think of some of the failures, you think of the failures of these men, of Peter. And he's going he's to reinstate Peter. He's going to commission Peter to tend to his lambs, to feed his sheep. Dear friends, as, as it was expounded for us last week, your salvation is not dependent on how well you do. That's not where your assurance lies. The object of your faith is Christ. And the assurance of our salvation is Him. Not you. That's what we have to let sink in our minds. So that when we sin and we fail and we recognize this, we know that we can freely come before our 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 holy and living God, and to confess our sins and to know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And to know that in spite of ourselves, in spite of the things that he knew that we would do, that he's still going to use us and he's still going to make us effective for the kingdom because it's not us, it's him. And that's the point of it all. He's the provider. He's the one who works. He's the one who brings about anything. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Dear friends, that's, that's what you have to allow to, to sink into your mind, into your heart. And instead of saying, oh, Lord, I know I can't be used because of this thing that I did over here. You say, oh, Lord, I don't know what you have necessarily for me to do, but I am willing. Guide me and direct me. Let me do something for you to honor your name while you have placed me here in this earth. Let me bring glory and honor to you in spite of my failures. Oh Lord, do a mighty work and use me. And when we, when we come to that kind of a confession and recognition, then, then we are truly recognizing that everything is done in His power according to His standards, according to His guidance and direction, Everything. And you cast out the net where he says to cast out the net. Well, what if I don't know the gospel all that well and I can't give such a, an elaborate definition of what the gospel is or whatever? It's not about how well you can speak or what kind of a great argument that you can make. What is the simplicity of the gospel? Jesus died for sinners. That's what you give them. That's what you say. Well, what if I fumble my words? Well, look at Moses. He definitely wasn't an eloquent speaker. Oh, Lord, I can't talk well. well I'm going to send Aaron with you, but I have another excuse. And it's interesting that you have Aaron that goes with him in order to, to be the mouthpiece, but you often have Moses that's talking directly to Pharaoh. It's not, again, it's not how well that you can speak. So what if you fumble up your words? Maybe you don't say everything that needs to be said. I couldn't tell you how many times I fumbled my words up here. What do you do? You don't dwell on it. You just move along. I remember for like two or three Sundays, I kept saying Ned instead of need. Needing dough. Three Sundays, I'm saying Ned. What do you do? You laugh it off and move on. I did pray for my family that did not tell me this after the first Sunday, though. Oh, Lord, forgive them. You're going to make mistakes in what you say. Sometimes you're not going to remember everything. But what is it you need to remember? Jesus died for sinners. And you can know the love of God if you believe upon Christ. The saving part is all the Lord. He saves whom He desires 
He's the one who takes his gospel and applies it to the hearts and opens up their hearts and takes out their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, all of that. It's all in his power. And he provides everything that is necessary in order to honor him through obedience, through ministry while we have time. So, dear friends, you have to let go of what things have been happening or what things have occurred. You have to let it go. Because if Christ has forgiven you, then you need to move on. Because that's the one who matters. And so, one of my favorite passages of Scripture in Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says this, jumping in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what's behind, I press forward. You have to let it go. You have to say, Oh Lord, forgive me, but help me to move past my failure. And run your race with endurance, laying aside every sin and encumbrance which so easily besets us. Run with endurance, completing your race. And to complete your race for the glory of our Lord and fulfilling everything that was desired of you by him. You know, think of this. It is so amazing to me that the Christian life is likened to a race. You know, when you, when you look at that passage in Hebrews chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 12, and he says that we have so great a cloud of witnesses. And these witnesses are all those who came before us. All the believers, not only in the hall of faith, but all believers throughout all history who ran their race well, have now, in, in, the, in, in the usage of, of what he's talking about there, have ascended into the stadium seats, if you will. They ran their race. Now they're sitting in the arena. And they're the ones who are encouraging us as well through the deeds that were done in the past. Run your race well. And look unto Christ. So, dear friends, run your race well and recognize that it's all in his power. Now, the starting point of any of this is first off, do you know the king to whom we're talking about that we're running to? Because all these things are written that you may believe that Christ was the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. He accomplished it all. And he says to you, believe. That's it. And what does saving faith encompass? Having an understanding of what Christ has done. Agreeing that it's true. It actually happened. He lived a perfect life. He died uh, the death of, of, of your, being your substitute. And he rose again. And then the third aspect of saving faith is the trusting part, which is basically all of that I believe he did for me. That's what he says. In believing, you can have life in his name and a life more abundantly to honor him throughout the rest of your time here on earth. I'll leave you with this quote by James Montgomery Boyce. He says, can we miss that the church is made up of those who are doubters, deniers, and sinners of many varieties, but who have been brought to faith by Christ and have had their sins forgiven? These are the ones who do Christian work 
normal people with all the failings we are heir to, not fictitious characters of superhuman faith and fortitude, end quote. Normal people, us. The Lord uses normal people to accomplish his will and his purpose in this world. Dear friends, that is you and I. So trust in him in his direction and trust that it's all in his power. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you so much for this portion of your word. And thank you, Father, that these things are not done in our power. That that is not a weight that you have placed upon us, a burden that you have placed upon us. You tell us to plant seeds, to water seeds, but you give the increase. Father, you tell us to preach the gospel to every creature. Father, it is all in your power whom you bring to faith, not ours. Thank you that, that we, we have confidence in you and that, that our hope and our confidence, are, everything is in you. When it comes to the effectiveness of ministry, it's all you. Father, let us rejoice in that. Let us be comforted in that. And let us remember once again the gospel, not just to remember it in order to tell others, but to remember it for ourselves when we become sorrowful because of our sins that Jesus died for us. Oh, Father, do a great work within our hearts and use us for your glory. Use us for your honor to further your kingdom here on earth. And thank you so much for using us in spite of ourselves. Oh, Father, be glorified in our lives. May Christ be honored. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, Amen.